Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, you're giving a chat about Kate Shepherd, a suffragette campaigner who was instrumental in Aotearoa, New Zealand, becoming the first self-governing place on earth to grant its people universal women's suffrage. I promised everyone um, some more Kiwi history. And uh, while I'm still sort of properly researching things like the Musket Wars and the Treaty of Waitangi, um, I wanted to get across the story of Kate Shepherd, as plenty of listeners have been in touch requesting it. And uh, she's a toweringly important figure in, uh, in, uh, in not just New Zealand history, but also in women's history. Um, because of her central role in securing Kiwi women the vote, as well as securing Aotearoa's world first, as I've already said, she was a tireless and tenacious campaigner. She was a gifted writer and a public speaker, someone who took a, uh, a huge number of setbacks in her stride and never gave up until she achieved her goal of, uh, of getting the vote for women. So hers is, it, it really is an incredible story from the way that she drove the campaign through its ups and downs, there through thick and thin, fighting the good fight to improve the lives of her fellow, fellow Kiwi women. And today we're going to talk all about it. We'll talk about her life, her campaigning, the arguments she laid out, her, uh, her setbacks and obstacles, and ultimately, of course, her achievement and her legacy as one of the most important figures in the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. I want to thank all the Kiwis that have been in touch with me over the last couple of weeks. Um, it really is great to have you along. Cameron, Cameron McLaren, Ethan, Jasper Pickering, Liz Whelan, Brent Roloff, Hannah, Sam Whitehead, Andre Delamar, Taylor Newland, Graham Waterman, Samantha Jerry, and of course, Jordan Coxhead. So kia ora to all of you over there across the Tasman. Really appreciate you tuning in. And uh, I'm also I'm sorry that it's taken me so long to get properly stuck into Kiwi history, but uh, there will be more coming after this week. Don't you bloody worry about it, mate. Anyway. Let's get underway here. Let's get underway with the story of one of the greatest New Zealanders in history, Kate Shepherd, the tireless suffragette whose lasting legacy is felt by politically empowered women all around the world, even today. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 10th of March, 1848. But we're not going back to Aotearoa, New Zealand. Instead, we're going to Liverpool in Britain because it was there that Kate Shepherd was born as Catherine Wilson Malcolm, the daughter of a Scottish couple, Jemima Crawford Souter and Andrew Wilson Malcolm. She was the second of five kids and uh, we, don't, we don't have an enormous amount uh, of detail about her, her childhood and her upbringing, but uh, we do know that she was a very intelligent kid, very well educated as well. She grew up to have a strong understanding of everything really from law to music to science. And her family were reasonably well off, um, so much so that sadly, when her old man died uh, with young Kate at just the age of 13 or 14, he left behind enough money for his widowed wife and five kids to, uh, to, to get by. And uh, after moving around Britain and Ireland for a couple of years, Shepherd's mum uh, eventually decided to move all the way to the other side of the world, to Christchurch in, uh, in New Zealand in late 1868. Now, this is obviously quite a decision to make, you know, particularly in the 19th century. It's not as if you got on a plane back then. It was a month, you spent months and months on ships, right, with, uh, with, uh, with small kids. So a huge decision here. But she packed up her family um, for a few reasons, right? Firstly, she wanted better job opportunities for her sons, and there were said to be, uh, well, much better opportunities for settlers in Britain's colonies rather than remaining uh, back in the old country. There was uh, 
there were stories and tales of prosperity and uh, and well, look, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to make the situation sound too great because obviously it was based on the back of like colonialism, which is rife with all sorts of issues. But generally speaking, if you were a white settler who had the means to get to the other side of the world from Britain and you know could take advantage of generous land grants or, or, or whatever else to, to seek your fortune, you, there was a good chance you were going to do pretty well for yourself. And this is one of the reasons that the, uh, the Shepherd family moved over. But secondly, <clears throat> the other reason, in a move that won't surprise any grandparents who are out there listening, don't you worry, I see the demographics. I know we've got some wise and venerable grey hairs listening to the show. My greatest respect to you, old ones. Hope the knees aren't giving you too much trouble here. Have a worthers. Anyway, yes, the classic grandma move that Shepherd's mum undertook was this. Her eldest daughter uh, had, uh, in the time previous to uh, Jemima making this decision, um, her eldest daughter had moved to Christchurch. And in this time, she had married a fella and had a kid with him. And so really what it boiled down to was, yes, sure, she wanted better job opportunities for her sons, but Jemima just wanted to see her grandkid. Very easy to a very easy way to get your parents to move to wherever you want them. Just have a kid yourself, and they will come running. I know the grandparents out there will agree with that sentiment. Anyway, so Jemima Shepherd's mum she organises a big one way trip to the Antipodes aboard a ship called the Matawaka, um, a ship that had made the long trip halfway around the world many times indeed. Um, but interestingly, this would actually be its very last successful voyage. After dropping um, Shepherd and her family off and departing New Zealand for the return journey to Britain, the Matawaka was never seen again. And we still don't know for sure what happened. We think it was lost to ice, but what's really interesting about this ship is that it was carrying. 50,000 pounds in gold when it was lost, right? Which is about 7.3 million pounds in today's terms. So if you fancy a treasure hunt and you can hold your breath in cold water for a really long time, the Matawaka and its riches are still out there somewhere. Anyway, thankfully, there were no such issues when it came to Shepherd's journey. This uh, this uh, penultimate voyage of the uh, of the Matawaka was, uh, was, it was safe as houses. Uh, but it did take a long time, three months. But in the end, got there safely, as I say, and uh, this meant that Shepard first set foot on Aotearoa on the 8th of February, 1869, and no one could have possibly predicted at that point the impact that she would go on to have on not just the development of colonial New Zealand, but more broadly on the political rights of women everywhere thereafter. After arriving in the port town of Littleton, just south of Christchurch, Shepherd and her family moved to uh, to Christchurch, this uh, this fledgling town, which today is the second largest urban area in Aotearoa, New Zealand, with a 2023 population of 384,000 people. Very small. Outside of Auckland and its population of 1.4 million, Kiwi cities and towns are tiny. Only seven of them have more than 100,000 people. And obviously, it was even fewer back then, Obviously, of course, right? Although uh, at this time in, in the 1860s, 1870s, uh, the Pakia population of Aotearoa was exploding. It had more or less doubled between 1860 and 1870. And then between 1870 and 1880, it would go from around 300,000 to half a million people. A lot of people moving to New Zealand around this time. Uh, and of course, amongst amongst those people moving were Shepherd and her family. They settled down into, Christ, into Christchurch, and Shepherd herself she integrated into Christchurch society very quickly indeed. She joined the local church. She socialised and made friends with other well-educated people in the town. 
1871, just a couple of years after arriving in Aotearoa, she, she married a shopkeeper and city councilman named Walter Allen Shepherd and took his last name, the name by which she is known to history. And from there, seemed to have a relatively quiet, stable and ordinary life, initially at least. Through her church, she helped to raise funds to develop and improve Christchurch. She, uh, she continued to stay informed of and involved in local affairs in the town. Um, in 1877, Shepherd and her husband took a trip back to Britain, staying there for 12 months, but then headed back to New Zealand, back to their home. And uh, shortly thereafter, in 1880, Shepherd gave birth to her only child, a son named Douglas. So I'm sure you'll agree with this, a pretty unremarkable first decade or so in uh, in New Zealand for, uh, for Shepherd. And even at this point, you'd be forgiven for not guessing that she would go on to have... Uh, such a huge influence on her new home so far away from the old country. But, of course, she did. No one in the history of women's suffrage in Aotearoa is more notable than her. But before we start to talk specifically about Shepherd's involvement for fighting for, for the vote for women in Aotearoa, let's have a quick chat about the, uh, the New Zealand women's suffrage movement in general before Shepherd became involved in it. <clears throat> Broadly speaking, in many places throughout the Western world, women's suffrage movements were were gaining momentum throughout the back half of the 19th century. In places like Britain, the United States, Australia and Aotearoa New Zealand, women were beginning to band together and promote the idea that women should be allowed to vote, just as men could. Or some men could, anyway. Historically, the vote had only been given to property-owning white men above a certain age, with the rationale that... uh, they had to own property in order to have a, a a proper stake in the country in which you were voting, and obviously there were there was a lot there was lots of campaign, there were lots of men, working men who didn't own property who went off and campaigned against these restrictive voting laws. And over time, slowly but surely, they were uh, they were relaxed, and uh, and more and more men got the vote. And uh, I don't want to say universal male suffrage, but something close-ish to it, with you know very heavy racial undertones preventing non-white people from voting in many places around the world. But uh, wider male suffrage, at least, became more of a political norm in uh, in these places uh, as time went on. However, it took a lot longer for women to get to enjoy the same voting rights as men, although when we're talking about New Zealand specifically, they were definitely ahead of the curve, and a lot of that was to do with the role that Shepherd played, as we'll come to. But let's talk specifically about the uh, the, the, the push for women to vote in New Zealand. In Aotearoa, the the women's suffrage movement was very closely aligned, uh, to begin with at least, with the temperance movement, the idea that access to alcohol should be heavily restricted or even just prohibited altogether. Um, And uh, these campaigns, the campaigns for women's uh, women's votes and for for the temperance movement, these campaigns were run in parallel to one another. Temperance campaigners and voting equality campaigners were, were very close to a circle on the old Venn diagram, again, to begin with at least. And... uh, Interestingly, this led to those uh, in support of getting on the Terps or those interested, those, those with a vested interest in other people getting on the Terps, such as wealthy politicians who owned breweries or distilleries, for instance. Uh, they opposed not just temperance, but also by extension, women's suffrage. So even if they didn't really have any skin in the game when it came to women voting, because of this close alignment between the temperance movement and the women's suffrage movement, you sort of got people who were opposed to one being opposed to both of them, because as I say, they were run along the same lines. Anyway, the reason I bring up the temperance thing is it is that in the 1860s and 1870s, um, before Shepard really gets stuck in, the greatest driving force behind women's suffrage in, uh, in Aotearoa is the Women's Christian Temperance Union, an organisation of, well, of 
you know, Christian women who were strongly in favour of temperance and prohibition, rather, obviously. Um, there were very many famous, notable Kiwi suffragettes, Anne Ward, Catherine Fulton, who were involved with the WCTU and led its early campaigning, influenced by other similar campaigns in places like the United States. And I want to talk very briefly here about one of their major lines of argument. We're going to get into, um, when we talk more specifically about Shepard and her role in this campaign, we'll talk about the arguments that were used uh, in order to fight for the, the the right to vote for women. But there's one here that I want to that I want to sort of bring to your attention because again, it ties into this temperance thing. It sort of uh, sort of encapsulates the the broad stroke of the uh, uh, of the argument that many, not all, but many suffragettes were putting forth uh, around this time, right? And and this principal argument <clears throat> it was that giving women the right to vote would bring a greater level of morality into politics. And again, this links back to temperance, which was seen as a more moral way to live your life than, you know, getting pissed as a lord. But the basis of this argument was that women are inherently more moral than men. And again, I want to make the point, suffragettes back then were not a monolith. They held a very diverse range of views. But there were definitely a number of them that presented women as being more morally upstanding than men and believed that this would have a positive influence on politics in general were women to get the vote and be directly included in in the sphere of political decision making. Now, whatever you think of this idea and this strategy, I'll tell you this, it was not accidental. It was a very deliberate and calculated political strategy because one of the greatest challenges that women had to face in fighting for the vote was a pervasive perception that they were in every way inferior to men. So, placing emphasis on the moral virtue of women, superior to that of men, this was one way to demonstrate that women were not necessarily inferior to men in every way, and did in fact have meaningful and worthy contributions to make to politics. Now, obviously, we're looking at this through the lens of the of, of 19th century feminism, and I'll reiterate again that not all suffragettes thought this way or held these views, but I'm sure you'll agree that steadier footing is probably going to be found when arguing on the grounds of equality and fairness and justice, these days at least, rather than women's moral superiority. Um, but the fact remains that this was one very important aspect of the suffragette movement, and not just in New Zealand, but all around the world. And look, honestly, now that I sort of think about it, I don't know. Maybe they had a point anyway. I personally have met precious few women who commit the grievously immoral acts that I, as a man, enjoy so very enthusiastically, like first thing in the morning getting up, giving Megan a Dutch oven, for instance. Anyway, the long and the short of it is this. Suffragettes everywhere had a very, very difficult time bringing people on side, not just not just men as well, other women in some instances, had, had a very difficult time bringing people on side with the idea of women being given the right to vote. Women would have had an easier time getting men to share the tongs at the barbecue than they had trying to get them to share the vote. And this was as, this was as true in New Zealand as it was anywhere else. Universal male suffrage had been introduced across Aotearoa in 1879. Any man over the age of 21 could vote. There were no property qualifications or anything else anymore. But women were still out in the cold. And given how tough a time women were having in campaigning for the right to vote, it is very lucky that our mate Kate Shepard came along when she did, because she was truly instrumental 
in the success of the women's suffrage movement in New Zealand, one of the most important suffragette movements in the world, as we'll talk about. Shepard was heavily involved in Christchurch society, but her active interest in politics expanded greatly in the mid-1880s when she heard, or perhaps later read, a talk given by the prominent American suffragette Mary Greenleaf Clement Levitt. Levitt travelled all around the world with her dangerously feminist ideas, and Shepard was first exposed to them properly when Levitt visited Aotearoa in 1885. Levitt made quite an impression. Women weren't customarily known to get up and give fiery political speeches in New Zealand. And uh, Shepard was obviously quite taken by the sentiments that Levitt put forward. So much so that she helped to establish a Christchurch chapter of the Women's Christian Temperance Union and began to campaign on its behalf. Now, initially, her campaigning was more focused on temperance and alcohol-related issues. But when all these efforts were roundly ignored by politicians of all stripes, Shepard decided a different tack was required. She realised that male politicians wouldn't listen to women until women had the right to vote. After all, what was the incentive that these blokes had to listen to these women when they wouldn't be punished at the ballot box for just ignoring them? So... Shepard instead focused her efforts on raising support for women's suffrage, her arguments in support of it still very closely aligned with the temperance movement, all the same. She appeared at the 1887 WTCU conference, and that same year was appointed the National Superintendent for the Franchise and Legislation. Obviously, the WCTU recognised talent when they saw it. Shepard wasn't just intelligent and knowledgeable, she was extremely well-organised, and by all accounts, was an engaging and talented public speaker. She was a, a huge boon to the campaigning of the WCTU on very many fronts. And uh, in the time that followed, she did her best to whip up as much support as possible for women's suffrage, and with her help, the WCTU made a lot of progress a lot quicker than you might have thought. For instance, in 1887, a bill was introduced to the New Zealand Parliament proposing to give women the vote, and it was defeated by just one single parliamentary vote on a third reading. So close. But Shepard and the women of the WCTU, they didn't give up. They realised the wind was in their sails and they continued their dedicated campaigning into 1888 when New Zealand held a general election. Shepard was becoming more and more famous or perhaps infamous in some circles um, because at this point she was tirelessly travelling around Aotearoa, giving speeches, printing and distributing reading material, material, and keeping this issue on the political agenda at all costs. And at this point, I was getting ready to um, try to, you know, research and, and, and synthesise and, and then concisely lay out the arguments that Shepard took to the people of New Zealand while ca- campaigning for their support. But thankfully, I don't have to do that. Because Shepard herself published a pamphlet entitled 10 Reasons Why the Women of New Zealand Should Vote, which is short and punchy enough that I can read it to you here and now. These arguments are the ones that she put forth, and they are really, really interesting. Some of them hold up just as well today as they would have back then, while others really go a long way in showing what the, uh, what the political atmosphere was like back then, and the landscape of gender relations. Anyway, here we go in Shepard's own words, why the women of New Zealand should vote. Number one, 
Because a democratic government like that of New Zealand already admits the great principle that every adult person not convicted of a crime nor suspected of lunacy has an inherent right to a voice in the construction of laws which all must obey. Number two, because it has not yet been proved that the intelligence of women is only equal to that of children, nor that their social status is on a par with that of lunatics or convicts. Number three, because women are affected by the prosperity of the colony, are concerned in the preservation of its liberty and free institutions, and suffer equally with men from all national errors and mistakes. Number four, because women are less accessible than men to most of the debasing influences now brought to bear upon elections, and by doubling the number of electors to be dealt with, women would make bribery and corruption less effective as well as more difficult. Number five, because in the quietude of home, women are less liable than men to be swayed by a mere party feeling and are inclined to attach great value to uprightness and rectitude of life in a candidate. Number six, because the presence of women at the polling booth would have a refining and purifying effect. Number seven, because the votes of women would add weight and power to the more settled and responsible communities. Number eight, because women are endowed with a more constant solicitude for the welfare of the rising generations, thus giving them a more far-reaching concern for something beyond the present moment. Number nine, because the admitted physical weakness of women disposes them to exercise more habitual caution and to feel a deeper interest in the constant preservation of peace, law and order, and especially in the supremacy of right over might. And number 10, because women naturally view each question from a somewhat different standpoint to men, so that whilst their interests, aims and objects would be very generally the same, they would often see what men had overlooked, and thus add a new security against any partial or one-sided legislation. I found it really, really interesting to read through and to think about these arguments for, for a few different reasons. Firstly, while they were obviously written for the late 19th century and reflect the political climate at the time, some are still very relevant today in the 21st century, when women still face all sorts of challenges and obstacles when seeking equality and justice. This is hardly a closed issue, and Shepard making the argument that, for instance, women had as just, just as much skin in the game as men did resonates as strongly now as it would have back then. Similarly, the political inclusion of women and all marginalised people more broadly is essential, both back then and now, because not only do they have just as much or perhaps more on the line than men who have dominated human civilization for so long, they do provide a new perspective. They provide a different point of view that is so crucial in making sure that laws are the best that they can be. So when you go through and you look at reasons like, you know, number three, women suffer equally with men from all national errors and mistake, or number 10, um, that women see what men overlook and add a new security against partial or one-sided legislation. These are extremely well-founded arguments and arguments that are relevant even in today's political climate. So Shepard was really onto something with a lot of what she was writing here. Also, 
very interesting, of course, are the arguments that, you know, do show the age of the pamphlet. Number six, because the presence of women at the polling booth would have a refining and purifying effect. Not sure about that one these days, really. Although I guess women generally are more refined than men and it would mean fewer people picking their noses and scratching their asses in the line to vote. Sure. So, okay, fine, whatever. But what I found most interesting to think about here were reasons like uh, like number eight and number nine, and uh, specifically thinking about these arguments as presented almost 150 years ago and their potential relevance in the landscape of 21st century politics and gender relations, right? So these arguments, number eight, because women are endowed with a more constant solicitude for the welfare of rising generations, thus giving them a more far-reaching concern for something beyond the present moment. That's the first argument I found really interesting. Number two, or number nine, I should say, sorry, um, because the admitted, admitted physical weakness of women disposes them to exercise more habitual caution and to feel a deeper interest in the constant preservation of peace, law, order, and especially the supremacy of right over might. Now, obviously, I'm not the best person to critically evaluate these sentiments as I'm, you know, not a woman. But based on trends that you see in world leadership when women are in charge of countries and based on personal conversations I've had with women, I think that these arguments are more relevant today than many men might think at first blush, right? I don't want to go super deep on talking about this, but I will bring one thing from very recent, uh, not even history, very recent, just the last couple of years, right, during the COVID, uh, during the COVID years, that sort of illustrates and, and highlights some of the relevance of what Shepard was saying all these years ago, right? According to, according to research that's been done on how different nations handled the, the pandemic, right? Nations that had women in charge as heads of state or heads of government tended to record vastly fewer COVID deaths and emerged from the pandemic, their countries emerged from the pandemic in much better shape, broadly speaking, than nations that were led by men. Now, I'm not getting into the whole, oh, women are more caring and nurturing because that's obviously nonsense. So I'm not, I'm not, not so much talking about that. But when you think about the, the, the hyper-masculine climate of, 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 of competition and winning and being strong and presenting strength and, and all the other nonsense that's, that's tied up in, uh, in, in male gender roles, when looking at the argument that Shepard is putting forth that women have a more far-reaching concern for something beyond the present moment, that women feel a deeper interest in the constant preservation of peace, law and order, maybe there's something to that. The data suggests so. And I'm not, again, I'm not getting into the whole, oh, women are more caring and nurturing because that's obviously sexist drivel. But I'm I'm talking more about maybe the fact that women are just a little bit more sensible than men when it comes to thinking about the future, having a bit of foresight and not looking at what's immediately in front of them and making sure that they're winning the pissing contest. Look, I don't know. I'm not a huge expert on this sort of thing, but I do find it very interesting that when you compare hard data from a global pandemic in which nations that had women in charge emerged with 40% fewer COVID deaths than the nations that were governed by men. Maybe there is something to the argument that women, after all, should have a role in politics and not just a minor one, but a very significant one. And this is what Kate Shepard was fighting for with this pamphlet and all the, all the rest of the work that she did. And I don't think that we should be quick to dismiss the arguments and and the rationale that was put forth by feminists from over a century ago as being outdated or irrelevant. I mean, you know, certainly some of it 
hasn't stood the test of time. I don't think any of us are worried about polling places being purified by the presence of women. But all the same, right, I encourage you, if you have the inclination or the interest, to head online, have a proper read through this little pamphlet. It's only 2,000 characters. It's basically a Twitter thread. It won't take you long. And then you can go back to your threads about men's pants. But have a read of it. And have a think about it, both as a product of its time and also its potential relevance today in the 21st century, backed up by 21st century data. And, of course, against a backdrop of women continuing to fight for political and social equality around the world. Anyway. Shepard continued to campaign along with the WCTU and had, uh, unfortunately, mixed results as time went on. In 1888, a new bill was submitted to Parliament that dealt with a range of electoral issues, one of them, of course, being women's suffrage. And initially, this bill actually explicitly forbade women from voting, although uh, it was delayed for a long, long time, held up by its opponents in Parliament who, uh, who supported women's suffrage. And these supportive parliamentarians ended up going a lot further than just de- just, just delaying the bill. They actually amended it. Ultimately, uh, they flipped the script and had the bill offer the vote to women, not forbid it, but actually give it to them, only for the bill then to be defeated by seven votes this time, not just by one. However, undeterred, Shepard began collecting signatures on petitions that she intended to present to the New Zealand Parliament. And then in, a- in the uh, 1890 elections, She whipped the WCTU into shape to grill every single parliamentary candidate on their views on women's suffrage. She just wouldn't let this issue go away. She made sure that every single politician was being held to account and being forced to give their perspective on the issue so everyone knew where they stood. And on top of this, uh, this enormous petition that Shepard had been working on, she presented it to the new parliament in 1891. It had over 10,000 signatures and this directly resulted in another bill being put before Parliament that would allow women the vote. And reflecting the groundswell of popular support for women's suffrage that was so clearly demonstrated by Shepard's campaigning and this, and this petition that she put together, the bill, the parliamentary bill, was also met with broad support across Parliament. And it was set to pass and finally grant women the right to vote. But then, due to one of the sneakiest political manoeuvres you are ever likely to come across, this bill, like the ones before it, was defeated. This time by just two votes. It failed to become law and just have a listen to how this happened. You won't believe it. As this bill was being debated, uh, a parliamentarian by the name of Walter Carncross, he proposed a new amendment to the bill that women not only be given the right to vote, but also the right to stand as parliamentary candidates. Now, you're thinking, oh, Walt, mate, good bloody on you, standing up for what's right, looking to further the cause of progress, not just have women vote, but get them into parliament parliament as well. What a hero this bloke is, Walter Carncross. I bloody love it. What a legend. Get around him, right? Well, gentle listener, what if I told you that Walter Carncross was, in fact, staunchly opposed to women's suffrage. So what's he doing trying to get women in Parliament, let alone giving them a vote? He should be voting, he should be fighting tooth and nail to make sure this this bill doesn't pass. Well, that's exactly what he was doing. Because this absolute snake in the grass 
proposed this amendment knowing full well that all the bleeding heart liberals with their ridiculous ideas about fairness and equality and justice for all, they would all roundly support it. While on the other hand, all the moderates who had, who had been convinced that women should vote, but oh, they weren't quite convinced that they should run for office, all these people would now oppose the bill in its entirety. So, unable to convince people on the strength of his anti-suffragette arguments, Carncross instead just turned a bunch of yes votes into no votes, scuppering the growing support for women's suffrage by making the bill that would have granted women the right to vote then go too far in the eyes of political moderates. Now, we obviously can all come together and condemn this Khan Cross prick as, as someone who has secured his place on the wrong side of history, but all the same, what a move from him. As clever as it was truly reprehensible, and it worked. The bill failed, defeated by two votes, because while the majority of the parliament, the, the broad majority of the parliament was in favour, was, it was in support of women voting, Letting them run for office was another matter altogether, and by tying one, uh, one issue with the other, Carncross succeeded in making sure this bill did not become law. But once again, Shepard was not put off. Victory was so close, she could tell. And so she redoubled her efforts. And when I say redoubled her efforts, I do mean that actually quite literally. She worked tirelessly to circulate another petition to present to Parliament, and sure enough, this one ended up with... Double the number of signatures. She gathered no fewer than 20,000 signatures this time. And uh, this was also while anti-women's suffrage campaigners were out trying to get petitions of their own going in opposition to votes for women. And uh, they, by way of contrast, struggled to get to a quarter of the support that Shepard did. And that was after having to pay people to go out and collect the signatures. Shepard and the suffragettes, they weren't getting paid. They were just doing it of their own volition, going out and, and raising the support and getting people on site. They weren't being paid for it. But tragically, the, the next electoral bill in 1892 also couldn't make it through Parliament, this time held up on technical arguments about women voting by post. This deadlock couldn't be resolved, and so it was abandoned. But by now, you can probably guess what happened. Amazingly, this is actual real history. This actually happened. Shepard went away and gathered 30,000 signatures, the largest petition in Aotearoa's history at that point, and it was presented to Parliament. And so it was that in 1893, an electoral bill was put in front of the New Zealand Parliament that would grant women the right to vote. And thanks to the tireless and tenacious campaigning of Kate Shepard and all of these other hard-working suffragettes that had put everything they had into securing the vote for women, in 1893, this latest electoral bill passed the New Zealand Parliament with a resounding, emphatic majority, making Aotearoa the very first self-governing place on earth to adopt universal women's suffrage. Although I probably should say on the whole resounding and emphatic majority bit, um, by now even the anti-women's suffrage politicians 
they realised they'd lost. And so they voted in support of this third bill as it passed. And you, you might think to that, well, why? What? Well, I mean, you know, if you're going to hold these views, at least hold them, stick to your guns, go down with the ship. But uh, no, no, no. These men had a very good reason to support this uh, this bill as it passed in 1893. And that reason was women were about to start voting. And do you think that it's likely that they would re-elect someone who had just actively attempted to prevent them from having the right to? So all of these spineless weasels finally came over far too late to the right side of history, voting to support this bill at the death when they realised that they didn't really have any other option. But I do want to uh, make note of the fact that there were some anti-women suffrage campaigners and politicians who stuck to their guns. The ones with the real backbone, the ones who refused to vote in support of this bill, they just failed to show up for the vote itself. Outstanding move. Because then you can't say, you, you can't, you can't, you know, truthfully claim that they voted against it. Anyway. In the wake of this monumental victory for Kiwi women, Shepard was rightly hailed as a hero. But her work was far from over. An election was going to be held that very same year, 1893, and there were rumours that some parliamentarians would push to have it as quickly as possible. And again, you might think, well, why? What, what's the, what difference is that going to make? I'll tell you what difference it's going to make. They wanted as few women as possible on the electoral rolls as the election was called. Think about it, right? If, if women are given the right to vote and then an election is held that next week, there's no chance that all the women across Aotearoa can get out and register to vote. So now Shepard once again had to swing into action, no rest for her. And now she's campaigning not for the right to vote, but for women to actually go out and bloody do it. She and the WCTU, they were out and about encouraging women up and down New Zealand to get registered, get ready to vote in the upcoming election, which was, I think, only a few weeks after this, uh, this amendment, was, this, this, uh, this electoral bill was passed. And once again, she did an incredible job. 88% of Kiwi women were enrolled by the time the election came around, and almost 70% of them turned up at the polls to cast their vote in this election. Women still couldn't run for parliament. They wouldn't be able to do this in New Zealand until 1919. But all the same, women now had a political voice in Aotearoa. And while there was so much more to be done, while there is still so much more to be done, even today, Kate Shepherd had motivated and mobilised half a country, essentially, to secure their place in the politics of Aotearoa New Zealand. And for this, Shepard was, and still is, recognised as a hero of New Zealand's history, widely considered one of the most important Kiwis ever to have lived, alongside Ernest Rutherford and Sir Edmund Hillary. Episode 277, get across it. She's also, of course, like Hillary, on the money. She's on the Kiwi $10 note. But even with this great victory she shared with women up and down Aotearoa in 1893, you won't be surprised to learn that the rest of Shepard's life was spent campaigning and advocating for women. She travelled the world to speak at conferences. She wrote extensively for feminist publications. In 1896, when the National Council of Women of New Zealand was established, Shepard was naturally elected its first president. She fought for the legal independence of women, for the economic independence of women, for equal pay for women, and, and also for other non-feminist political uh, reformist causes as well. 
And on a broader international scale, Shepard and the suffragettes that had all worked so hard to secure the vote for Kiwi women had a very strong influence on feminist politics all around the world because they had shown what was possible. They were the first to get there. Women's suffrage was achievable. And while it took a little bit of time for some other nations to catch up, Shepard had helped to give to the world an ironclad example that what feminists and suffragettes everywhere were fighting for was indeed within their reach. As we move into the 20th century, however, Shepard's role in public life began to decline. Ongoing marital issues with her husband saw her move between Britain and Aotearoa. And uh, while by 1904 she had settled permanently in New Zealand without him, she was making fewer and fewer public appearances. Speeches became rarer and rarer, although she still continued to write, and she still travelled here and there to meet with other feminist organisations around the world. But her influence uh, was no less strong as, as a feminist leader, and uh, when, she, when she spoke, people listened. In the 1910s, she used her significant political clout to urge the Kiwi government towards allowing women to stand for parliament, which as I said, came about in, in 1919. And she also re-energised the National Council of Women of, of New Zealand, which had uh, sort of fallen by the wayside. And uh, she served briefly as its president once again in 1918 and 1919. But overall, I think it's fair to say that Shepard's later years were much quieter than her heyday in the 1890s, as she adopted an esteemed role as an elder stateswoman, a veteran of political and feminist campaigning. Kate Shepherd died on the 13th of July, 1934, in Christchurch at the age of 86. But her legacy lives on, not just in Aotearoa, New Zealand, but across much of the world, where women benefit from the hard-fought political rights and freedoms that Shepherd was amongst the first to secure for Kiwi women. New Zealand is not a perfect nation by any means. It has a complicated and convoluted history like, like anywhere born of colonialism. But Kate Shepherd is someone that Kiwis everywhere and more broadly women everywhere can be truly proud of. Aotearoa New Zealand was, as I said, the first place on earth to offer universal women's suffrage to its people. A fact that this small country can be very proud of. Shepherd and the other Kiwi suffragettes taught the rest of the world a very important lesson. Here in Australia, for instance, we, we learnt that lesson reasonably quickly. Hot on the heels of Aotearoa, women's suffrage was granted in Australia in 1902, although it wasn't universal like in New Zealand. Uh, Indigenous Australians were still excluded from voting in some states. But nonetheless, Shepherd and New Zealand's influence on the cause of global feminism was enormous as Shepherd proved to women everywhere that suffrage was within their grasp and that they deserved and would have the vote if only they would fight for it. And in 2022, just last year, with the remarkable Jacinta Ardern at the helm as the Kiwi Prime Minister, the Parliament of New Zealand had, for the first time, more women in it than men. And all of this, and so much more, was only made possible for these women and countless others besides by the tenacious, courageous, and heroic efforts of one of the greatest figures to emerge from the history of Aotearoa New Zealand, Kate Shepherd.
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. Terrific to get across a bit of Kiwi history. Terrific to get stuck into a bit of feminist history as well. Uh, so I do hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned a thing or two. Um, and uh, plenty more Kiwi history coming down the pipeline, as I say. Um, fascinating. Honestly, so much more interesting. A bit like Australian history, really, as well. We sort of discount our histories as, as being a bit boring and, you know, not a, lot, not a whole lot went on. But really, really fascinating to see how our relatively young nations in, in international, you know, nation-state terms um, ha- have developed and, and become the countries that they are today. And it's something that I, I really want to explore further. As I say, I'm doing a lot of reading on Kiwi history, doing a lot of reading on Australian history. Um, and there'll be plenty more like this in the future. So, uh, so keep an ear out. And uh, again, topic suggestions or, or any just resources, anything you think I should uh, have a look at while, uh, while, you know, looking at stuff from colonial, post-colonial history from Australia and New Zealand, uh, I'd love to hear it. So anyone from across the ditch, anyone from Australia, anyone from around the world, really, it's good to hear from you no matter where you are. Thank you so much to all the people who are writing in. Halfhousehistory.net, you can find a contact form there or just send me an email. Um, the email address is uh, in the uh, in the description of the show. A special welcome to all the all the new listeners coming in, checking out the podcast for the first time. Welcome, by all means, welcome. Be sure to have a look in the podcast description at the top there and you'll find a short list of episodes that you can get stuck into to sort of give you a bit of a sense of what the show's about. Maybe you typed history podcast into Spotify and this came up and you're like, oh, sure, this looks all right. I'll give it a crack. And then, you know, next thing you know, you're listening to an in-depth and comprehensive history of the toilet. And that's, well, look, maybe that's exactly what you were looking for, in which case you're in luck. Get stuck in. There's lots of nonsense for you to get across and plenty more nonsense coming your way in the future as well. I want to thank all the people who, uh, not just the new listeners, the old listeners, all the people who are tuning in every week, week in, week out. Couldn't do it without you. Speaking of which, couldn't do it without the Patreons, patreon.com slash history. Thank you so much to all the uh, all the patrons, old and new alike, who are supporting the show uh, financially week in and week out. And um, the merch shop is still available there if you want to get your hands on uh, on things. Although I have had some complaints from people and very valid complaints they are too. Shipping costs to Australia are outrageous apparently and so if anyone has any ideas or if anyone knows of any other um podcasts or i don't know i don't know what you'd call it just anyone that has merch that is accessible to australians considering that the majority of the audience is in australia um it'd be great to have uh more affordable merch for people living on this side of the world you know for all the aussies all the kiwis who are wanting to get their hands on a, on a half ass history t-shirt um particularly obviously interested in any merch outlets that offer um sustainable or or sort of more ethical options when it comes to uh product offerings so if you have any knowledge or you know maybe you follow another podcast that has a great merch setup let me know so i can uh, i can do some research and, and maybe uh, rejuvenate the merch store a little bit uh, but that's about it. Thank you so much for listening. Back here next week with non- more nonsense, of course. Until then, please keep those emails coming. Send in your topic suggestions, whatever they're on. And uh, looking forward to your company next week as we get across something else. Until then, leaving you, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. Can't believe I haven't come across this one before. I guess we haven't done that much Kiwi history, in fairness. So, But now we have. Oh, boy. This one's a cracker. All right. Here it comes. It comes from Notorigen, who asks, <clears throat> if new... Zealand is part of the Commonwealth. Shouldn't it be called New Zealand? <laughs>